Well, this morning, I hope the Lord has given you a heart that is attentive. I always feel strongly about anything that we're preaching, but I just feel like there's some help for some of us uniquely here this morning in these passages. Uh, if you were with us last week, and if you, if you weren't, I hope you'll get a chance to review, download the message. We, we have been looking at what I'm calling behind-the-scenes looks in Acts chapter 16. Acts 16 begins the, the second missionary journey. So these, if you've studied the Bible for a while, you know there's, there's three missionary journeys and so they're, they're kind of a famous trilogy, if you will. And when I think of missions, I'm probably like you. I think missions, I think of, you know, sort of the front lines of Christianity. I think of a person who's taking the gospel into an unreached people group. The gospel is being presented. It's being heard and clarified for maybe the first time. And conversion is happening. and People are turning to Christ. That's what I think of when I think of mission. So when we have these three missionary journeys, our tendency is probably, at least mine, was to, to think in the direction of that sort of activity. But when we read these missionary journeys, there's a lot going on behind the scenes besides just that flashpoint of the gospel reaching somebody and conversion taking place. You know, It's, it's kind of like when we go to see a movie and, and we watch two hours on the screen and for us, that was a two-hour investment. You know, it was the images, and then there's a musical score, and there's actors who've been involved, and there's scripts and storylines and all that stuff. But for us, it's a two-hour highlight reel. But if you've ever been involved in the movie world, you know that there's a lot going on behind the scenes before that movie ever gets in front of people. Days and days and days, years even. I mentioned last year, one of my favorite trilogies is the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and they've expanded that, and there's more of those dudes coming out here uh, soon. But what takes eight or nine hours to watch on a screen took a decade, 10 years, to write the script for, prepare for. A lot was going on behind the scenes. Well, when we see the church doing its thing in Acts 16... There's a lot going on behind the scenes, right? Behind the scenes last week. I want to stress this to you because we can take this meeting for granted. Last week we learned about how God raises up guys like a Timothy. Young guys who are just sitting in meetings like this. They heard the gospel, got saved. And God began to stir their heart and form in their heart a vision for ministry that would be a defining element. That for thousands of years people would still be talking about this one guy named Timothy. And a man named Paul who took him by the hand. That was taking place behind the scenes in just a a typical church setting. A gathering like we're having today. It's church, right? I mean, maybe this morning you just gave no thought to it. It's just just that place on the calendar. Sunday morning, I get in the car, I drive to this building. It's It's just what I do. But behind the scenes in Acts chapter 16, these kinds of meetings, they were worth people risking their lives to have. That's how the apostles treated these meetings. And many of the meetings that we see in the New Testament, they weren't the apostle Paul with the idea that I'm going to a place to stand on the, quote, front lines of ministry and introduce Christ to people so they can become saved. 
that was part of the missionary journeys. But behind the scenes, we learned that, that many of the times, these journeys were about the Apostle Paul and people like him going to groups that looked just like this, who were filled with people who already were saved. And coming back to teach and strengthen their faith, because strengthening faith is not a secondary matter. It's not something that you treat like a hobby. If you're a Christian, you have something precious that resides inside of you, and the, and the vision of the church needs to be this. Not just a vision, and we have a vision for this, and I love the fact that we do, that people who have never met Christ need to meet him. People who don't know Christ, they, they face eternal consequences in their life. They need to meet Christ. But people who have met Christ, th- their faith needs to take them from this moment right here, from the moment that they got saved, all the way to the end. See, I know this is a theologically brain turner, but you know, only those who believe in the end will be saved. I know that makes you wonder, oh, well, Keith, where should, that doesn't sound like theologically what we believe around here, is it? Yeah, it's exactly what we believe around here. In the mystery of God, God grants and gives faith and regeneration, but then the scriptures clearly say that that lasts to the end, and then God uses means along the way to faithfully install his care for our faith. One of those means is, is right here. It's happening this morning, right in this meeting, right now. There's a supernatural thing happening to your faith as you sit in a meeting like this and you hear the word of God and, and the spirit of God stirs the truth of God in your life. And in the scriptures, men so valued that, that they put their lives on the line and went back into places where they knew that they could be killed. And they went into unknown places where they suspected that they would probably face similar treatment in other places. See, that's what's going on behind the scenes in these missionary journeys. But what I want to tap into today is a, is a second element that's behind the scenes here. And we, we see it highlighted in the story of a woman named Lydia. It's what I'm going to call behind the scenes grace. There's a lot of human activity in these chapters. But there's this behind the scenes grace taking place in these chapters. It's almost like, almost like, you know, the hum of your air conditioner. You know, you ever sometimes wonder whether your air conditioner is working? You know, you get, shh, 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 you know, get everybody quiet. And you're just listening for that slight hum in the background. You know, are we going to cool down in here? Are we going to get some air in here? You know, listening. Okay, I, I want to teach us to listen for the hum of grace running in the background of all that we do. That's on these pages. It's behind the scenes. This verse that all of us should have memorized, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, answers for us, what, what is grace? At least it's one verse that helps us to see. What is grace? The scriptures say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, right? Grace is present from your salvation through every moment of your existence as a believer. As a matter of fact, accurately, grace has been present before you were ever saved. Grace was at work before you came to know Christ, before you had a care or a desire or an interest or a need 
to know Christ. Grace was at work. And, and, and there's this element here we're going to see. We're going to read about one person. It's interesting. This great journey that we're on takes the apostles all the way to Philippi. And when they get to Philippi, we're going to see the story of one person converted in Philippi. A woman named Lydia. We don't hear about anybody else being converted in Philippi at this point. But just this woman named Lydia. And grace was behind the scenes. But what is this grace? Let's get a little deeper appreciation for grace before we read her story. J.I. Packer says this. He says, grace is God's undeserved favor. His unmerited love. Let me ask you guys this. This is just chase back into history here. If you've been saved for a long time, do you remember in churches when you couldn't go a week or two or three without hearing somebody define the word grace? You remember that? Unmerited favor, unmerited favor. I just remember just hearing that a lot when I was first come to Christ. You know, our terminology's changed. It's right now, it's like grace has fallen from grace or something. It's like we don't talk enough about grace. We talk about the gospel, but we don't talk about grace. Well, you know, I'm not sure those two ch- words aren't some interchangeable in a lot of ways. But I don't want to assume that anybody here really even knows what the word grace means. Because sometimes we're over familiar with things. Grace is God's undeserved favor. His unmerited, you didn't do anything to get it, love. Dr. Snaith rightly comments, Nothing impressed Paul more than the fact that God's love for men was a gift from God entirely undeserved on men's part, depending only upon God's own will. The other term involved is God's hesed. This is his unmerited love, this this covenant love in the Old Testament, the word hesed used to describe that. This is usually rendered as mercy or loving kindness. Steadfast love is better For the basic thought behind the word is of God's, I love this, resolute loyalty to the people to whom he has pledged himself. The word grace thus comes to express the thought of God acting in spontaneous goodness to save the sinner. God loving the unlovely making covenant with them, pardoning their sins, accepting their persons, revealing himself to them, moving them to response, leading them ultimately into full knowledge and enjoyment of himself and overcoming all obstacles to the fulfillment of his purpose that at each stage arise. That's That's a lot of words there. But can I just ask you, you know, because I can throw this word grace out and you can hear me say Walmart. You know what I'm saying? Walmart, grace. All right, how much time is left in the message? I mean, I just, I just heard this word grace. No big deal. Is it really no big deal? I mean, come on, think with me. Just look at some of the words in this definition. There are people sitting in this room right now who are in this definition. You, you feel unlovely. That's how you feel about your life. You feel unlovely. You're going to go off on the next person who stands in line and treats you like you're unlovely for the hundredth time. You've got some, you you used to call it an inferiority complex. You've got something that bubbles up inside of you because people have touched you in such a way that just has reaffirmed for you the frustrating sense that you are unlovely. People just aren't attracted to you. They don't treat you the right way. And that's in this room right now. 
And yet grace is God loving the unlovely. You don't have to, you don't have to play head games. Because I mean, some of us are, are not only like unlovely, we know we're unlovely. Now, some of us here are mad because, you know, we don't think we're unlovely and we're being treated like we're unlovely. Some of us fully know, I am unlovely. I just am. There's stuff about me. Hey, I can pretty some stuff up about me, but there's some stuff that I don't feature in public that's just plain unlovely. It is. Well, what does it mean for me to have a God who is gracious, is a God of grace in my life? He, he loves the unlovely. Just think of the most unlovely thing about you in your world. And it doesn't run God off for a second. It doesn't diminish his grace. It doesn't augment his grace. His grace comes to you full bore. No matter how unlovely you feel you are. Accepting their persons. I mean, how many people in this room are just fighting to be accepted? Just the number one value in our world is to get people to accept us. Can't stand the idea that anybody would not value us, wouldn't want to be around us, wouldn't want to include us in their group. And we just feel rejected and unaccepted. But grace is a word that just flies right past our ears. But grace is announcing God is accepting people with all the unloveliness that we bring. He's moving them to response. I mean, how many of you guys are sitting here this morning? You feel like I, I just I'm so cold in my walk right now. I've just been so uninterested. I've been so distant from God. Or I'm, I'm living with a husband or a wife that's that way. Or I'm living with children that way. That way. I've got people in my life that just are unmotivated, unresponsive toward God. And you're sitting in this room and I'm using the word grace. And you're letting it go. I passed you. And we're going to see something about Lydia today. That grace has to do with God moving people to respond. God moving people to respond. You don't feel like moving. You're not motivated to move. You're, you're PO'd, man. There's problems. You're irritated. You're, you're barely even here this morning. Because God doesn't even deserve for you to be here. That's how bad things are. And you're not moving from where you are. Except for grace. Where God moves us to respond to him. What a hope that is in this room. What a hope exists for every person in here. Not because you feel like moving, but because grace moves us to respond. You're going to see that today in her story. Packer goes on and says, It thus appears that rightly rightly understood, this one word grace contains within itself the whole of New Testament theology. The thought of grace, then, is the key that unlocks the New Testament. And and I would dare to say it's the key that unlocks the way in which you and I approach life. Grace is the key about why we make decisions or why we feel a certain way about the future or how we're doing. Living by grace means we feature God and his undeserved intervention in how we think about our lives. We feature that. We feature God. We don't feature us. We feature God and his undeserved intervention in how we think about our lives. Right? Grace is this strange input from God. Right? Our, our, we're just walking along, doing the course of life, day upon day, activity upon activity. And God steps in with grace. And that grace, it, it just flips things upside down. It just reverses the way things are. It's just his favor 
just comes and touches our world. You know, sin has this gravitational downward pull upon our lives. Grace steps in and it's like an anti-gravity moment. Everything just starts to float. For no reason, God just steps in and your life just goes in a different direction. Grace is, you know, ever seen the, the miracle Grow commercials? You know, you got this, this typical plant, this, this dried up, barely making it plant. And next to it is the miracle Grow plant. It's full of buds and just, it, that's grace. Right? Just to your, left to yourself, there you are just struggling to survive. But boom, grace comes with like miracle Grow, and there's this fruitfulness all of a sudden in your life. Just because grace came in your life. Now, I, call, I call grace, I've used this illustration before if you're playing cards man god plays the grace card not the race card the grace card in our life at whatever moment he wants to you know if you're a big card player you know that there's usually in some game there's usually some card it's the trump card you know that you've got it in your hand and no matter how bad the card game gets no matter how much somebody else looks they've got it going on You've got that card. You're just holding it. You're just waiting for the moment where, boom, you throw it down. You probably go boom when you do it too. Boom. Throw it down and and just sit back, right? And just watch. Uh, I just overcame everything that you guys had on the table. Well, that's what grace does. Grace is no matter how bad our situation has become because of natural forces or even the harder ones for us to believe. No matter how bad you and I have made it. Because we're knuckleheads and we're lazy and we're selfish and we twist our lives in knots and we do everything in our mind that if you feature everything we've done, then I guarantee you, you're going to turn your back on God thinking God cannot and will not do anything further in your life. But when we meet God in grace, we find out that that's the moments where God plays the grace card. Now, I've done all these things to screw my life up as much as I possibly could. And I don't deserve for God to do anything on my behalf. And God steps in and does everything that I didn't think he should have done. That's what grace does. I think I'll put in your outline there something about a, how do we get water in the kingdom of God? Now, you guys remember the formula for water? Chemistry formula? H2O? Right? Well, there's something about us that we, we've got some strange chemistry in the kingdom of God that, that we think this is, this is how God works. Our faithful, good, consistent input causes God's faithful, good, and consistent involvement in our lives. Right, do you have a theology like that? This is this cause and effect that features us as the cause. We move God. So if I'll, just, if I'll just be faithful, if I'll just be consistent, if I'll just be good, then God can step in and be faithful and good and consistent in my life. But, you know, I, I got to do that. And there's so many pulpits today that that's where the message sits. That's what it features. It features what you need to do so that God can get around to doing what he needs to do. It's almost like a bad chemistry experiment. We want water. We're going to need hydrogen and oxygen. Hydrogen and oxygen. You guys bring the oxygen and God will be faithful to bring the hydrogen. And we'll have water. There'll be water in the kingdom, guys. You're just going to have to bring the oxygen. I mean, hey, 
two atoms of hydrogen. You just got to bring one atom of oxygen. You, you just got to bring the oxygen. God will bring the hydrogen and we'll have water. Really. That's how you read the Bible. That's how you see the kingdom. So when Adam and Eve from the get-go are relating to God and they choose to blow God off, reject his ways and his wisdom, eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, wander off into the garden and go find some oxygen so they can run back to God with it, right? And say, God, can we make water still? Here's our oxygen. Is that how the story reads when you read it? Because I don't find anybody bringing anything to God in the Garden of Eden. Do you? You're forgetting the story, I can tell. I find Adam and Eve hiding from God. I don't find them pursuing God. I find them confused about their life and about God. That sounds familiar. And I find them hiding from God. But yet at the end of the story, we got water. Not because Adam and Eve brought oxygen, but because God just decided by grace to make water. Nobody brought the oxygen. God brought it all in that moment. How did the people of God ever become the people of God? Well, it wasn't because Abraham, that idol worshiper in the land of Ur, was bringing the oxygen. God, we want water in the kingdom, so Abraham's going to bring the oxygen, God will bring the hydrogen, and we'll have water. Is that how it happened? The man was an idol worshiper. He wasn't bringing anything to God. He wasn't pursuing God. And God shows up in his life and says, Hey, Abraham, I got water. Here you go. The nation of Israel, we read all about them in the Old Testament. How did they ever become a nation? It was because they, instead of all the other nations, they were the ones bringing the oxygen so God could finally make water. Really? Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. Out of all the people, I've chosen you to be my people. You know, none of them had oxygen, but you guys, you guys got the oxygen. So come on, together we can make water. Is that what this story says? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Right, this is grace coming into people's lives. He has brought you out and he's redeemed you. Why do you do that? Out of grace. Why would you do that toward us? Why'd you do that toward us, God? Why, did, why weren't you on the Egyptian side in this exchange? They've got us in slavery. Why do we receive favor from you? Why are we allowed to cheat the world system? And you step in and make it different for us. Why? Well, it wasn't because you were great among the nations. As a matter of fact, to make my point, I chose the one that was the least. I chose the one who didn't have anything to motivate me. But I have loved you because I have loved you. How do you like that answer? No, God, tell me I'm pretty. <laughs> tell, me, tell me I'm great. Tell me there's no one like me. Throw a party, make a big deal. Draw attention to me, God. Tell me I, no, I love you because I love you. Well, what about this thing you swore to your fathers? 
Oh, yeah, that was Abraham. Remember him? He was the idol worshiper who brought nothing to the game either. He wanted to be an idol worshiper. And when I stepped into his life, I promised him I'd make him great. Why'd you promise to him? Because that's how I am. That's how I am. See, grace features God. Does it feature us? Oh, we have a hard time with this. But it's what God does. And, and see, grace is working behind the scenes every day of our life. It's always been working. You see, you see this all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. But it's in Philippi as we read these passages. Let's read verse 11, back 16. It says, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, a short journey by ship to an island, and the following day to Neapolis, coastal city, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, a little quick background on Philippi, just to, to give you some history there. Uh, you know, we're pretty far away from Jerusalem at this point. So, you know, Judaism begins to thin out the farther you, you get away from Jerusalem. But there yet is still a testimony about the monotheistic God over the Israelites that's present in this part of the world. Now, once there was enough folks there who were believers, they would form, typically within a city, would form a synagogue. And that's where Paul would show up. He'd go to the synagogue first. And he preached to them from the Old Testament. But when he shows up in Philippi, there doesn't appear to be a synagogue. He's got to go down by the river, assuming there's some kind of place where people gather for prayer. Uh, you know, custom was if you didn't have 10 men, you didn't have enough to form a synagogue. So more than likely, there were not enough male Jews in Philippi for there to be a synagogue. So he goes and finds a place of prayer. He finds these women gathered by the river and they're, they're gathered for prayer there. And we're going to meet Lydia here in verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Hold on to that phrase. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And all this time we've come to Philippi and now the Lord zooms in on one person, Lydia. And what's first said about her can almost be misleading, but it's actually very, very, very helpful. Because a phrase is used here that we've bumped into before. She was a worshiper of God. All right. What do you do when you encounter in the New Testament a, someone called a worshiper of God? Do you, do you just move on? Did the Apostle Paul give a high five to Lydia? Say, Lydia, so glad to meet a fellow believer. I'm going to go on to the next town. Now, what was her condition in proximity to the gospel? She, though called a worshiper of God, needs to hear the gospel. And she needs to respond to the gospel. 
But she's called a worshiper of God. Yes. She was a woman who she's in a place of prayer. She was a woman who was inclined to believe in the one true God. She was a woman who had a significant category in her life where there was religious devotion in her life toward the God who was revealed in the Old Testament. So she is a worshiper. She's a connector with, in some fashion, the God who has created everything. And this isn't the first time we've met this terminology. And you back up into Acts chapter 10, we meet a man named Cornelius who was called a worshiper of God, highly respected. He was a Roman centurion who was highly respected amongst those who were religious. Do you remember what he needed when he meets the apostle Peter? He needed to hear the gospel and respond. When you back up a little further, you get into uh, Acts chapter 9. Saul of Tarsus is a religious man. He is a worshiper of God. He is more displaying and affectionate of his worship toward God than probably most people you've ever met. But yet, the, this man Saul of Tarsus needs to hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. We back up into Acts chapter 8. We meet the Ethiopian eunuch. This is a pretty devoted religious man. He's traveled over a thousand miles from Ethiopia north up to Jerusalem to pay homage to the God of glory. To honor the God who created all things. He believes toward this God. And he travels all that way. And he's coming back. And God awakens Philip. And sends Philip to stop this man on his way in his chariot. And to help him understand what he's reading in Isaiah about the gospel. So can you see this? Religious people, worshipers of God in this terminology, need to hear the gospel and they need to respond to the gospel. And that's kind of weird, isn't it? Because we, we tend to think that if anybody's acknowledging God, and they say they believe in God, then it feels awkward to try and adjust that, to try and say, well, there's more than that. But that's exactly what the Bible does. This helps us. Because you and I bump into people who acknowledge God in all kinds of ways in their lives. But they need to hear the gospel, and they need to respond to the gospel. J.C. Ryle says, all people born into the world of every rank and nation must have their hearts changed between the cradle and the grave before they can go to heaven. All, all men without exception must be converted. Every person must have their heart changed. Religious people need to have their heart changed. Wicked law-breaking, never-going-to-get-out-of-jail people need to have their hearts changed. And no matter of fact, it's the exact same heart change. It's not like the religious person just needs a, a tweak and the really bad dude needs an overhaul. You know, this, this one needs a fuel pump, this one needs a new engine. No! Both of them have a heart that's wrong and alienated from God and needs to be regenerated by the mercy of God. Both of them do. So don't be offended if you're, if you hear somebody, you know, somebody who's a Christian and they've kind of gotten up in your world and they've challenged your belief as though, would you say, what I believe in God, I've always believed in God all my life. Listen, when you encounter somebody in the Bible who says they believed in God, they still needed to hear the gospel of what Jesus Christ did to reconcile you to the God that you say you believe in. And if you respond, then he will restore you to himself. 
If you don't respond, you will not be restored to him, even though you acknowledge him and appreciate his reality. But that's where this grace thing comes in here. Because we're about to witness a woman respond to God. How does that happen? How does this woman hear the gospel and respond to God? Right, listen. Do you hear the hum? It's grace running behind the scenes. Why this woman responds is because of grace in her life. This is how it gets explained to us. The Lord, the Lord, who? The Lord opened her heart to respond. Your translation may say to pay attention. He opened her heart to respond. These two words are interesting. The anoigo is the Greek word meaning opened. Listen to this word. It means to open what before was closed. Interesting. Even though she was a religious woman, her heart was closed in some way. To cause to see what was not seen before. To open the mind, the heart. To make able and willing to understand. To receive. Who did that? Who was it that made her able and willing to understand? Who made Lydia able and willing to understand and to receive? It wasn't Lydia. It wasn't Paul. It was the Lord who did that in her life. Listen, in in a very real way, you know, every one of us are Lydia. Any of us who have come into responding to God. This is how you did it. The Lord made able and willing our hearts to understand and to receive. Right? You ever scratch your head? You're having a conversation. You're relating to somebody that you know that you're just thinking this person's never, they are never, there's no way they're never going to respond. You still feel that way when you see who it is that unlocks the heart? See, I only feel that way when I think either that person needs to unlock their own heart, and I can guarantee you, this person ain't never going to do that. You have no idea what my husband's like. Ain't never going to believe. All right, well, the never comes in when I think he's the source of unlocking his own heart. And then the frustration comes in when I think that I'm the remedy to his problem. (laughs) So... Most of us will never share the gospel because we don't understand the anoigo. We think that, no, I've got to have the ultimate comeback. I've got to be able to put this argument behind that argument on top of that argument. 18 scriptures and 45 minutes later and this person is buried and I have done it. I have opened their heart and they are now believers. And then you do that twice, three times. It doesn't work. People don't respond. You're hoping yourself diminishes. You're hoping them never did even exist. And so why, you know, why share with them? Why, you know, why have this conversation? Why go down that road? They're not going to listen. And I don't even know if I know what to say. It's misplaced, right? Grace features God. It doesn't feature us. It features God. The Lord opened her heart to respond. 
That word's prosecco in the Greek. It means to yield assent, to believe or to embrace. God opened her heart in such a way that she embraced the gospel. She didn't scratch her head. She didn't argue with it. She didn't point out flaws in it, exception points to it. She yielded to it. That's the response of what God does. But it's what God does in the heart. Do you remember Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples? Matthew chapter 16. And he, he asked them a question. Who do men say that I am? And they come up with this list. Well, some say this, some say this, some say this. And Jesus turns and says, well, who do you say that I am? Apostle Peter blurts out in his, I'm going to speak first fashion. But he had the right answer. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what's even more interesting than his response was Jesus' response to him. Exclamation point. Jesus turns to Peter. says, oh. It's like I, almost like he heard somebody else's voice in the room and he turned. Oh, Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven showed you that. It's almost as though he was ready for another, you know, another numbskull answer. You know, you're this, you're that, you're this. Oh, that sounds very, ooh, like you've read a book. That sounds interesting. And, and he hears the voice of his Father revealing something that he knows flesh and blood could not have figured that out. Flesh and blood doesn't figure those things out. Flesh and blood doesn't have the ability to see those things. Peter, but you saw it. And I see my father's fingerprints all over you for you would never have seen it had he not allowed you to see that. I put a couple of verses in your outline. Look, Look at the limitations of flesh and blood here. John chapter 1, verse 11 says, Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. All right, stop for a second before you read the rest. I know you know this passage. But you have some people here who don't receive him. You have some people here who do. People who reject who he is and people who believe who he is. What was the difference? Well, the difference is in verse 13. These people were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but, but of God. See, when one is born of God, when God goes on the inside and does the work on the inside like he did with Lydia, like he did with Peter, all of a sudden things that flesh and blood cannot figure out become clear. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Listen, by nature, all of us are in John chapter one, rejectors. By nature, we're rejectors. The flesh and blood of man will reject Christ a hundred times out of a hundred. Always. It's not as though we just got to, we got to go out in the highways and byways and find those rare individuals whose flesh can believe the gospel. That's what we need to go out and find. It's just rare. There's not many of them that are like that, but some of them are just, you know, they're just made of more noble material. And if we present the gospel to them, they will believe. Does that sound right? There's no one out there like that. You'll shop forever. Flesh and blood cannot. It cannot. John chapter 3, Jesus reiterated this. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless one's born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Right, remember this passage from Ezekiel 36? You're going to see it come to life in Lydia. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I, God says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, that unresponsive, I'm not going to respond, I'm not going to believe heart, from your flesh and give you a, a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to do that. All right, so when we pull up into Philippi and we see the Apostle Paul preach and we see a woman named Lydia and on the outside, we see her come forward, we see her gather for prayer, we see her get baptized. On the outside, we see her in agreement. On the inside, Ezekiel 36 is happening. Lydia, I will give you a new heart and I will cause you and I will motivate you to respond to me. I'm not making this up. That's in the passage right here, right? It's what God did in this woman's life. So when we look at this behind the scenes activity, the gospel being preached by the apostles, by us, by anybody, why, why have faith to preach to Lydia? You, you got all the cheat sheet. You got all the behind the scenes stuff right now in your head. But going from town to town, some are believing, some are rejecting. Many are rejecting. Amazing miracles are happening. Are you kidding me? We're going from town to town putting on a freak show. Jesus was doing that. And yet people stare at a message that they heard in the Old Testament. It's not like they're just, oh, we've never heard anything like this. They preached from the Old Testament to these Jews. And then they did amazing miracles right in front of them. And these guys scratched their heads and thought, hmm, how many rocks do you think it'll take to kill that guy? (laughs) What? Because flesh won't respond. So why preach to the Lydias? Why preach the gospel? John Piper says, the speaker of the gospel relies upon the Lord. Prayer is not mentioned here, but that is what we do when we realize that it is the Lord who is the decisive actor, not us. We have a significant role in speaking the gospel, but it is the Lord himself who does the decisive work. When we get to this point in the story and we listen to Lydia's story, the Lord opened her heart to respond. He is the decisive factor. If you stood after reading Acts 16 and said, why is Lydia a Christian? Because the Lord opened her heart to respond to him and to respond in faith. Now, Paul knows this. Why does Paul go and preach to the Lydias? Because Paul knows that God is Lord of the heart. God is the one who's in charge of reaching and affecting the heart. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king's heart. Right, well, none of us are going to bump into any kings 
anytime soon. So we're not really concerned about the king, are we? How about any sinners in your life? Got any sinners in your life? Any? The sinner's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You got any pain in the butt husbands in your life? Got any wayward children in your life? The child's heart, the husband's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Right, see, this is what grace does in our midst. It's behind the scenes doing stuff like this. It's moving upon hearts in ways that you and I could never have even known for the heart to need something. And if you get quiet, you can hear the hum of grace operating behind the scenes of all that we're doing, all the noise that we're making with our lives behind the scenes. It's grace that's accomplishing the decisive work. Ezekiel 7. It's a great story. All right, this is post-exile, 70 years, you're in Babylon. Time to go back, but who, you know, who's to say they're going to let you go anyway? You were taken captive, you're a bunch of slaves, and you're living in, a, in another foreign land. But God promised by grace that at 70 years, you're going home. So for some reason, <laughs> at 70 years, your captors decide, mm, I don't know, time up, why don't y'all go home? Really? That happens all the time, doesn't it? What happens here, because God promised that in 70 years, they're going to let you go. Oh, but not just let you go. They're going to give you the king's credit card and send you home with it. (laughs) They're going to tell you to go home. They're going to load your wagons. They're going to fill you up with all kinds of gold and silver, all kinds of belongings. They're going to threaten anybody in the land where you're going, that if they mess with you, they've got to deal with the king. Oh, and by the way, when you go back and you reestablish worship in Jerusalem of the one true God, right? These are pagans. When you go back and you do that, if you, if you use up all your resources and you run out of money, just charge it to me. That's what the king says before they leave. So this is Ezra recording this. Ezra 7 verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. Behind the scenes, wasn't it? Nobody knew that was going on. Ezra couldn't tell. The heart of the king? The king's going to want to do this stuff? Are you kidding me? He put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me. Right, how many of y'all know that there was not a giant flesh and blood physical hand sitting on top of this man? Do y'all realize that's not what's being described here? It was just a sense of the favor of God was on his life. A sense that God is with me. That's grace. This guy heard the, the hum of grace running in the background. And, and, and in a day in which you didn't just show up before the king with a request. I'm going to show up and ask you for, hey, king, pally wally. Listen, you know, if you read Esther, Esther was married to the king and afraid to go into the presence of the king. She's married to him. You imagine what, Esther was, uh, what Ezra was like or what Nehemiah was like. 
when he's going to make a request earlier on to go back to Jerusalem and he's going to talk to a king and ask him, you just didn't do that sort of thing. And here this setting, these, the king, his counselors, and the mighty officers. I mean, can you imagine? This is, this is like going before some stately presence and you're going to make a request. Why did this man, this is where I'm talking about why grace informs how you live your life. Ezra, why would you stick yourself in such a vulnerable, dangerous situation? Because I just had this sense that the favor of God was on my life. I had a sense that God was with me. That by grace, God would do in the hearts of people what I could never do. And God did in their hearts. Acts chapter 7 verse 9. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. And rescued him out of all his afflictions. And gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Listen, that happens by grace. Joseph shows up before Pharaoh. God gave him favor and gave him wisdom. Gave him words to say. And won over Pharaoh. Listen, this is what grace does. Grace never allows for man to be the determining factor. What was the determining factor in Joseph's life? Was it his his jealous brothers in a rage who sell him off into slavery? Were they the determining factor in their life? No. He ended up being exactly where God, by grace, wanted him to be so that God's hand of favor could be upon his life and elevate him to the number two man in the world. That was grace. You know what you really got to love about grace, though? Is, how about, let's not play the role of Joseph, right? We're living in the dungeons of life, and we're trying to believe that God is still for us. How about we play the part of one of the brothers? You want to see grace operate in that one's life? You're one of the brothers. You're one of the jealous, I'm willing to kill my own flesh and blood brothers. You're going to lie, betray him, lie to your father. You're one of them. You do realize that everything God is doing is being done by grace to preserve your life. Because those brothers would have died in the famine had it not been for what God graciously did. Instead, they become the recipients of the grace of God. See, don't, don't we, we just kind of don't believe that. God, if I play the role of being the bad guy, of being on the wrong side of you and your ways, if I play that role, then it's just over for me. That's not what grace teaches you. Grace messes all that up. All right, let me close with this thought for us. I see something in, in the book of Acts. I've seen it as we've been moving through it. It's just this little phrase that's been traveling with us. And I want to I pick up and grab it today. And I want to apply it to our lives. It has to do with commending things to the grace of God. Right? So you have these little settings where churches have just gotten started. These, these fledgling situations have just taken off. And a church is vulnerable and leaders left. And there, there's stonings and killings taking place in that setting. And yet the work of God is being commended to the grace of God. Right? You see it in these passages. Acts 14.23 When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting... They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they turned their back and they went on. 
this little fledgling group of believers had just started out. They were just now trying to figure out who they were and what truth is and how do we believe. And they turn their back and go to the next town. How can you do that? Acts 14, 26, when these men were sent out into these dangers, from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Acts 15, 40, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. It's like, Paul, go ahead and go back out into danger, face the dangers of the journeys, because we... We can hear the hum of grace in the background as you go. It's not just you going. God's grace is operating behind the scenes. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves, Paul said, to the Ephesian elders, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Listen, I know, and I suspect this might happen. We might want to get some insurance on this. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, you, you be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I know, I know wolves are coming in amongst you and they're not going to spare the flock. I can see the, I can see the blood on the ground. I know the confusion that's going to come when men from among yourselves, trusted faces and voices, begin to teach things that are aberrant and lead people astray. I, I know, and I'm going. All in the same sentence. Paul, how can you leave knowing all that's going to happen? Paul, don't you feel a sense of responsibility for these people? Paul, shouldn't you stay in light of those things are about to happen, I commend you to God, to the word of his grace. That's appropriate for us to do. Matter of fact, if we understand grace, it's the way we live our lives. It's when we become the feature and God is not the feature that we begin to live our lives differently. And when that happens, listen, you want to figure out why it is that some of us just, we got ulcers and we're difficult to be around and we're just worried and anxious and freaked out. It's because we feature us with a little bit of God chasing us around. We've got a big version of us and a little version of God in our lives. And, and that's going to drive you nuts, right? If we're, you know, they're planting churches. If we're planting churches... And all the future and all of its success is based on our actions, our strength, our influence. Then at some point, what's awaiting us is because this is all about what we do. See, it's all about us and what we do. Then at some point in the future, I'm, I'm going to be full of fear. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be full of fear. Things aren't going the way they need to go. I'm going to be full of frustration. Something's got to change before it gets to that cliff. I'm going to become aggressive and controlling. 
right? You, you see yourself in any of those categories? Fearful, frustrated, aggressive, controlling. Does that describe you at all? You know, it, it might be that those are the symptoms of it, of it all sitting on me. It's all sitting on me. I'm the feature here. But grace features God. It doesn't feature me. And we commend church plants to the grace of God. We don't commend them to us. We, we, can, we commend new converts to the grace of God. And I, I'm, I'm guilty in this one. I mean, we wrestle through and we think through. People come to Christ. How can, we, how can we get them growing? How can we get them stabilized? And we think through alpha and we think through beta and we think through ways in which these, these are young believers and we want to make sure that there's strength in their lives and we want to do all that we can to strengthen that. And that's right. Grace doesn't make us irresponsible. We should do all that we can to care for folks. But the weight ultimately doesn't sit on us. I don't know what your conversion story was like, but I got saved in 1979. I didn't get into a church until 1983. Along the way, there was a, a, my best friend got saved the same time I did. So he and I were in the same boat. So we were equally as confused and quite capable of just not helping each other at all. The only Christians I knew that had any years in front of them were Frank and Annette. And I think I'd see them once or twice a year. I'd get kidnapped once a year on my birthday and we'd go to their house for some reason. So for the first few years, I almost didn't get around any Christians for the first few years of my life as a Christian. How'd I end up here? Well, because grace was working behind the scenes the whole time. And I had a strange interest in just reading the Bible, read the Bible a lot as a teenager. And I, you know, there weren't a lot of books back then. And I wasn't the bottom if I knew there were. God was at work behind the scenes. So this all becomes, you know, whatever your category. If your category is marriage, if your category is raising your children, whatever your category is, it's making your business work. If it all becomes about you, then you can just go ahead and put on the calendar wherever you'd like. When would you like fear to have its moment? Or frustration? When do you want to schedule that? Aggression and control. That might be good for you to let everybody else in your house know when you've scheduled that one. Because they're going to have to be dealing with it. And, and it's all because your marriage is all about you and how you are going to fix your spouse and your role and involvement. Your, your children and your parenting is all about you. It's, it's what answers you have and what patterns you've led and how you have influenced. Your business, is it going to collapse or is it going to keep going? It's all about you. But, but stop for a moment and just, just listen. Listen. Do, do you hear grace humming in the background of your life? It sounds like that air conditioner. I'm all right. Grace is on. It makes all the difference in the world because behind the scenes, God is at work. Go ahead and have Kurt come back up. I'm not sure where Kurt went. Here, listen carefully. And I, and I want us to pray for a moment. I, want, I, want, I hope this will travel into your world in some 
weight and burden relieving ways this morning. John Piper says the speaker of the gospel, or can I say the husband or the wife or the business owner or the the mom or the dad relies upon the Lord. It is the Lord who is the decisive actor, not us. We have a significant role in speaking the gospel or in whatever role that God's called us to play redemptively. But it is the Lord himself who does the decisive work. When Paul shows up and preaches in Philippi to Lydia, it's the Lord who does the decisive work. It's the Lord who opens her heart to respond. Listen, this morning, I don't know, maybe you're in one of those symptoms and you're just recognizing, I'm really not operating with an awareness of grace. I feel the symptoms of fear. I'm terribly afraid. The future scares me. I live regularly afraid of my future. I'm very frustrated. People know that. They're dealing with me. I'm frustrated. I'm, I'm aggressive. I'm controlling. So, all right. If you're experiencing those things, listen, you, you, you're kidding yourself if you say that you hear grace. You don't hear grace. You, you have stopped hearing the hum of grace. That behind the scenes of all your activities and all your responsibilities and all your influence, there's this God who's operating graciously causing things to be fruitful, causing things to change, causing people to have things in their hearts that they never had before, causing things to happen. So here's what I want to do. I just want you to just be quiet for a moment, right where you are. Just you can bow your head just for a moment. And I just, I just want to ask you just to think a little bit. To ponder, do you, do you hear the hum of grace in the background of your life? Listen carefully. You think about how you've been walking and responding and thinking about life and planning. And is it with the awareness that grace is running behind the scenes? Divine favor is upon your life. The hand of God. God is with us. Have you misplaced that in your life? This morning, I think God wants to let you hear. Just hear it come on. It's there. It's just been too distant for you to hear. Let Let it come on. Let the grace that God is at work come on in your life. You're concerned about decisions in the future. How to get favor with maybe not the king, but maybe the boss or maybe the bank or whoever. Can you hear grace running in the background? God is with you. God is faithful. I'm going to ask you to do something as an act of faith this morning. Maybe 
Maybe there are some things in your life that you need to commend them to the grace of God. You need to just just give it to God in His grace. Maybe it's a financial situation. You're just stressed out about it. Can you can you this morning? I'm asking just a moment, along with others, just to to, to stand up here so we can pray together and to have you commend that to the grace of God the way Paul did he was aware things are going to happen stuff's going to happen savage wolves and misled, misled people but I commend you to God to the word of his grace I don't know what's going to be in the future of your business maybe you're worried this morning about your marriage how to sustain it how to change it how to ever get it to be fulfilling Maybe it's your children, their waywardness, their their unresponsiveness to you or to God. Whatever it is this morning. If you if you hear the hum of grace in your life right now, and you need to commend these things to God, I just want to ask you to stand up right where you are right now. God has always been at work in your life on the basis of grace, always. Even if you've gotten your life together, it used to be a mess and now it's not as much of a mess. The basis has always been grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. Do you know how many things in your life are going to be the result of grace? Not your doing. just let me just tell you because I know you know we do this we argue with ourselves it's like well if I just commend this to God what does that mean like I just turn it over and walk away from it and I don't care anymore when Paul became aware of the grace of God functioning in his life it meant he could turn his back on one situation and walk into another one that threatened his life even more See, that's what grace does it doesn't make you go quit and go sit down and say wow I'll just quit then no, it, it, it emboldens you. It gives you courage to move forward because you can take your next step because you are not the decisive part. You're not the deciding factor. God is the deciding factor. You just step in, do your thing with all of its weakness, with all of its inaccuracy, with all of its inconsistency. And God is the decisive player in this. So let's, let's pray together. And look to God in grace. Father, I thank you for you have never changed. Lord, you have never changed from Adam and Eve to this moment. Lord, you have never looked at us and needed us to get you moving on our behalf. Lord, the skins that covered Adam and Eve, they were your proactive movements on their behalf. They foreshadowed the innocent one who would die in their place before the foundations of the world. God, you had already moved in grace to slay your own son so that when Adam and Eve fell and rebelled against you, you could come and bring grace. 
And God, that continues to this day. Lord, you're a God who moves on our behalf because you love us. Not because we're lovely, but because you love us. God, that's how your grace is. And so, Father, would you lighten the load for us today, Lord? Would you help us to commend these things to your grace? That grace is still running in the background of our lives. It's present here this morning. It's not all sitting and dependent and waiting on us, Lord. You are the deciding factor. Lord, I just acknowledge that before you today. Just acknowledge that to God. Tell him, Lord, I've taken these things on myself. Lord, I confess that to you. I've been frustrated and I've been fearful. I've been angry and I've been controlling. But Lord, this morning, I, I just turn back to you in grace and say, Lord, thank you for all that you are to me. Thank you for who you will be to me. Lord, thank you for days of grace that are coming where you are the deciding factor, Lord, where no matter how weak I've been, no matter how problematic people have been, Lord. No matter how many brothers of Joseph are in the script of the storyline, Lord, you are the God of grace accomplishing abundantly beyond all that we could ask or even imagine. So Lord, we commend these details, these roles of life. Lord, we commend them to your grace. We commend them to you, Lord, this morning. We just, we take the burden of them. We roll them upon you, God of grace. Be to us all that we have need for you to be. Let's stand up together. Grace and peace, oh, how can this be? For lawbreakers.